Hey entrepreneurs and website owners, if you're ready to take your online presence to the next level, you need a reliable web host. And that's where Hostgator comes in. Hostgator is your one-stop solution for easy, affordable, and powerful web hosting. Whether you're launching a blog, an online store, or anything in between, Hostgator's got you covered. Don't miss out on creating the website you've always wanted. Visit milwaukeemafia.com slash Hostgator today and let your online journey begin. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to the fourth and final special episode of Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Walterkins. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And Gavin, jump right into her. All right, so yeah, for part four of four, we are back yet again with Berto Vallejo, who was a Latin king in Milwaukee, uh, which if you tuned in last time, you got to hear about some of that. Uh, we're picking up. You uh, you just got indicted with a bunch of guys, some uh, who were already in prison, but they got uh, a, a brand new indictment down. When we had talked previously, not on the air, but when we had talked previously, you had sort of explained to me that almost immediately you and uh, your family, your friends, had kind of come to the agreement that you were going to start talking. Is that more or less true? No, not not almost immediately. So so basically, the way it happened, right, when we got the indictment, like I said, it was a 72-page indictment, but a lot of the indictment is what I, le- what I referred to before as window dressing. I mean, they mm-hmm. basically indicted, like, uh, some of the Sawyer Kings. You know, they indicted some guys that really shouldn't have been our indictment. They indicted a female... I mean, there are just people that shouldn't have been on an indictment doing much in the street. Sure. The reason why the reason why a lot of them people got indicted was because their Inca was cooperating with the FBI. But that's the reason why I say that is because the cornerstone of our indictment was the one nine, right? The violence, the murders. And it just so happened that the people with the violence and with the murders was my closest knit crew. Me, my brother, uh, you know, one of my best friends too a superseding part of our indictment, uh, Benny, which is uh, another close family member. So we were the cornerstone. We had all the violence. And uh, when we got brought in, we were fighting the case. We actually were fighting the case right out the gate. Um, And we got over 20,000 pages of discovery, right? So once we get the discovery, you know, this is about nine, 10 months in. uh, Once we get the discovery, now we get to see what we're up against. Right. So uh, early on, nobody that we knew of as far as like name recognition was cooperating. Um, in our mind, all the small time guys that really shouldn't have been on the indictment, they were all getting out on bail. We knew these were the guys that were cooperating. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to know what odds were stacked against us. And I say we because we communicated within each other. Like we cared about each other, me, Tim, two, Fanny, we're family. Right. So. We weren't going to do make any selfish decisions, regardless of what they were. And once we got the discovery, listen, man, I, I went through that discovery with a fine tooth comb. All the cases that I was charged with, the cases that my brother were charged with, they were circumstantial at best. My mm-hmm. cases were like needles in haystacks. I mean, the cases I was charged with were a joke, um, with the exception of obviously the murder, right? But when I say a joke, I mean, I don't mean that obviously like I was there, I did them or I was a part of them. I say a joke as far as evidence goes. Right. There was no evidence to point me 
to point them at me in any of those cases, really. Uh, no guns, no eyewitnesses, nobody seen that, nobody heard nothing, right? I get to the very, very last section of our discovery, and I find a little packet with all the confidential informant statements. <laughs> and Which you're probably not supposed to have. And that's when I realized I was screwed. Well, technically we could have them. We just didn't know who the confidential informants were. But sure. I mean, okay. come on. I mean, let's let's be honest here, right? If you know, confidential informant WW says this on this day and this day, I know who the hell was there. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, so process elimination didn't tell me who it is. And um, needless to say, that's when I knew. All right, they got a strong case on me because he was there for this and he was there for this. Yeah, he might not have been here for this, but by the time I go to trial, who's going to be testifying? So these are all things that are going through my head. My brother's seen the same thing and Toot's seen the same thing. Benny, ended, he ended up actually getting superseded onto an indictment because he was too young to get indicted with us. So we're, we're, we're seeing all this and, um, you know, our communication is scarce. But like I said, we all had, we were family. So, you know, we communicated through family. Me and my brother were actually in units next to each other. It was crazy. We used to actually communicate through a vent. We used to talk through an air vent and, uh, and uh, quite effectively though. But, you know, so so when we seen all that, it was it was a somber moment. I mean, you know, like the writings on the wall, the feds have a 98 percent conviction rate, 91 percent, 91 percent of federal inmates take pleas. Right. So, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a long shot. Right. It's one thing if they only had what we seen when it came to the discovery as far as, you know, like I explained in the beginning. But now you got the competence performance. Well. That's what conspiracy is about. Right. I mean, the decision that we had to make was the, the only decision we had unless we wanted to be buried in the back of a prison somewhere. Now, it was easy for all the other guys to say, hey, you know, stand up. You know, we want to see you at trial. You know, be a stand up man. You know, these guys are facing five, 10 years at most. You know, 85% of the time they'll be out and whatever. You know, it was easy for that. So, and these are the same guys, man, I laugh about it now. I think about it, you know, these are the same guys that, you know, like I said, they have favoritism, you know. It's not okay for this guy to do something, but they don't mind being around this guy who they know did something. And and that's the ongoing theme, man. And, and just like in business today, it's not it's not what you know, it's who you know. And, and that's the same concept, man. It's the same, it's the same dirty concept that is just trickled down and, um, at that point, man, me and my brother and two, we kind of looked at it. Listen, we got to look out for each other. And uh, we made a decision. Listen, none of us will go in. And if one of us goes in, we all go in, basically. So, you know, that was the agreement that we made. And, uh, yeah, that's when that's when the decision came to, to actually come forward and cooperate. Okay. Was Were they uh, the government? Was the government pushing for you to do this? Or was this kind of something you decided? Oh, yeah, yeah. The... the, the uh, the government definitely was uh, interested in speaking with us. You know, when it comes to violence, man, um, there's never really a slam dunk case, right, with or without uh, cooperators. But so, I mean, you run the risk of losing. But I think it was more just so about about the closure and getting the details and understanding um, kind of what I explained to you in the last episode, just yeah. about the mindset and, and kind of the the decisions that go behind the atrocities that happen, you know, day in, day out. And then, you know, obviously what we're charged with and what we know 
are two entirely different things. So they wanted to know about what they didn't know. That's the way of the world. They, you have to make a deal where both sides are unhappy. Yeah, they wanted to speak with us. And, 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 um, and once it became mutual, I mean, it was the best decision. Sure. Okay, so I'm guessing as part of this, um, you have to agree to actually testify in court, correct? Right. So obviously with agreeing to cooperate, there's a lot of contingencies that go along with it, right? And truthfulness being one of them, and most importantly, right? And then yeah. along with that goes, yeah, being being basically held accountable to what you say. And that, that means that if they need you to come forward and say what you said, you have to do it. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that hinge on your cooperation. But the most safe way to go about that kind of situation is to make a decision within yourself to say, all right, if I'm going to do this, I'm turning away from this lifestyle. I'm turning away from everything. I'm going 100 percent. And that's the decision I made. Right. And that's and that's kind of what I'm getting at is if you have to testify and, you know, you're facing these guys who you've known for years. What kind of like, what kind of pushback did you get or feel from these guys who are probably pretty pissed at you right now? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm I'm public enemy number one, I guess, right? I mean, so uh, there's there's a lot that goes into it, um, especially with me and and my brother and and because like like I said, man, my kid's mother, her whole family were Latin, you know, some of those guys were really good friends of mine. Not to sound condescending. But I I didn't have to test. I mean, I didn't have to cooperate against them because they didn't do anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. They weren't they weren't the guys in the street shoot. But that's the hit or there. But yeah, so they they were they were upset with me. And that kind of that kind of it trickled down to, you know, obviously it destroyed the relationship between me and my kid's mother. Um, and then obviously my kids grew up there um, somewhat estranged from them because of it. Um, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of snowball effect when it came to that decision. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't taken lightly and, and, uh, that's just kind of how it goes, man. Obviously there's a lot of people that hate me now. Um, a lot of people that probably want to see me dead, you know, that's just being honest, man. In that game, when you violate the code, not just the code of the street, but the code of, you know your constitution and, and, and all the things that you said you once believed in, um, you definitely are at risk. And, and I'm still at risk, obviously. Yeah. You know, I, 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 uh, I, I, I stay away from certain areas and, and I stay away from, but, but I know, I know, I know that, you know, if they had a chance to do something to me, they would for sure. Yeah. I'm glad that you kind of explained that a bit because I think for a lot of people who don't know, you know, who never go through that situation, they probably think it's like the easy way out. You know, they're like, oh, now they're going to they're gonna reduce your sentence. You're going to get out in half the time or less. You took the easy way out. But yeah. but you explained yeah, it really true. well that, that there's a lot of things that, you know, you're going to lose out on that people probably right. don't consider. Yeah, that's the farthest from the truth, man. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, your whole entire lifestyle is weaved into, you know, that community, that brotherhood. And, you know, you put everything at risk, you know, there's no, there's no, you know, there's no light way to say it, man. You're basically, you're putting your life on the line when you make that decision. Um, 
and and then there's no going back you know there's no there's no reconciling from that i mean people that once shook your hand and said i'll die for you are the same ones that'll put a gun to your head and kill you yeah that's it's not a lighthearted decision man as far as it being the easy way out man i was still sentenced to 19 years um after my cooperation I mean, that's more time than a lot of people will ever do uh, i didn't mm -hmm. do the whole 19 obviously in the federal system you only do 85 percent of the time you know some programming so i ended up doing 15 years off of it but you know like i said prior to that i had done two years i got out at uh, 34 that's half of my life i spent in prison for all yeah. the crimes that i've done between the ages of 13 and 15. a lot of people can't even tell me what they were doing when they were 13 and 15. Right. Yeah. It's, you're not wrong. I, my memories are not that great. So, right. I mean, I see my nephew here, you know, and he's 13 and he's still playing with toys. Yeah. You know? Um, so, I mean, well. it's just, it's, it's perspective, man. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely people believe what they want to believe. You know, they come in with a preconceived notion about, about, you know, what an indictment is and what happens during indictment and how guys react and, Nobody really knows unless they're in it, man. You know, nobody yeah. really knows. And then, and then the toughest guys are the ones that are facing no time. You know, like these are the, these are the guys that were, that were, you know, they were basically delegated to sitting in the corner while the real guys hung out, you know, but now these are the tough guys, you know. They, so there's so many different dynamics um, that, that go along with this lifestyle and decisions and, and how things sort of turn out. And, and, and listen, all I can say, man, and, and, and not to get too deep, but, you know, all I can say is I was blessed from God, you know, to mm -hmm. be able to make the decision I made, to be able to be removed from the situation I was in, and uh, to have a second chance at life. Yeah. All right. So, Eric, I got good news for you. What's that? This is the part where we segue away from all this serious stuff. <laughs> Uh, and get back to some more fun stuff. So, Soberto, uh, when you are uh, an informant, when you go to prison, you get to go in a special wing of the prison, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that's a way of putting. It. I don't know how special it is, right? I mean, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you get you get your own. Is you don't go yeah. in with the general population, right? So when you cooperate, uh, obviously, when you cooperate, and you're you're uh, because you know circling back. You know, 90% of federal inmates cooperate. Think about that. 90%. Okay. So all these guys that are these stand up, you know, these, yeah, 90% of federal inmates cooperate. But it's who you cooperate against and how substantial was your cooperation that'll separate you from being put in a situation where you're on a regular yard in some federal prison. So, yes, me, my brother, two, Vanny, we cooperated substantially enough about substantially enough stuff that we ended up being put into what is called the witness protection program. You know, obviously I won't get into details of what, where they're at and all that, but yeah, it's basically an isolated unit that a lot of times is connected to an actual prison, but it's a separate unit. You know, you're basically there under your initials, which is supposed to be an alias, but trust me, everybody knows who everybody is. Yeah. If you want to know, I mean, you're put in with people from all over the country, but you end up running into some some real players, man. Yeah. So, yeah. So we had spoke previously, um, and there was some some very well known people that you uh, were in there with. I'll I'll explain this. I, I think a lot of people know, but for people who don't know, 
Um, one of the most famous informants of all time um, is a man named Sammy the Bull Gravano. And, and Sammy the Bull uh, was convicted of 19 murders, but then he, he flipped and he testified against John Gotti and a bunch of other mobsters in New York. And uh, and you've got a fun story about him trying to weasel in on your, one of your card games. Yeah. yeah, so Sammy, listen, Sammy, I mean, anybody who knows Sammy, let me tell you this, they would tell you that he has this major sense of entitlement, right? Like, I don't know if it's from the mafia or, you know, maybe people feared him or whatever it was, but it's a major sense of entitlement. And like, I didn't mind Sammy. I, I liked him, you know, I like to hear his stories and he was funny and you know, we would hang around each other, but, but there was, there was a lot of times where, you know, I distanced myself from people like him because he was kind of a, you'll smile in your face, but then you have something to say behind your back at times. And, and, and I say that because there was an incident that Gavin's talking about where I ran a card game in prison. I mean, listen, no secret, people hustle in prison, man. Uh, especially when you come from nothing and your family is poor. And you can't call home and get money whenever you want it. You have to hustle. I mean, I learned how to cut hair. I, I, I did whatever I could to hustle. And uh, and and one one uh, one of my hustles was was running a poker game. And and so Sammy had a poker game of his own. So this happened a lot. It happens a lot though, right? In in regular population and where I was at, where you get like big stakes poker games and smaller stakes poker games, right? And I mean that just you know, self-explanatory, right? Some guys have a little bit of money to gamble. Some guys got a lot. Well, I ran like a medium stakes poker game. You know, I let the heavy hitters come and gamble, but also let the little guys come and gamble. And you kind of just, you, you moderate and you kind of regulate how much people can bet. But anyways, when I did that, I kind of shut down Sammy's small stakes poker game because people didn't really like how Sammy ran the game. You know, like me, I would bring, you know, I'd bring soda to the game once a week. I'd bring chips. Like, if I'm taking a cut of the table, then I'm going to I'm gonna provide for the guys. Like, I want you to keep coming back. So once, once Sammy's seen that he's got two, three guys at his table and I got nine every night and people are waiting in line, uh, he started feeling some type of way about it. He started, he started, you know, being a little jealous, you know, for lack of a better term. And, and, um, so he comes to me and he says, Hey, he goes, Hey, but I, I, I see, I see your, your game is, is, is really picking up, man. He said, so why don't we do this? Um, he said, we can merge our tables and, and basically I'll take Tuesdays and Thursdays and, and, and you can take the rest of the game, the rest of the day. And, and I kind of looked at him and I laughed. I, I thought he was joking with me at first. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, Oh, you know, so I can, you know, I get some action, you get some action. I told him, I said, listen, Sammy, this is my game. Like, are you, like, are you trying to strong arm me for my game? Like, is that what you think is going to happen? No, you got to remember, you got to remember when I met Sammy, he's in his 70s, right? Or mm. whatever, late 60s. Like, I'm I'm a young stud here. You know what I'm saying? Like, I work out every, <laughs> I work out every day. Like, you know, I've been fighting the street my whole life. Like, come on, man. Like, what, you know what I mean? So, so I look at him, like, I don't care if you're Sammy the Bull or if your name's John Gotti, it doesn't bother me, right? So I told him, I said, John, I, I told him, I said, Sammy, you know, excuse my language, I said, you're, you're, you're effing hot. You know, I told him, I said, you ain't, you're not getting a date. And he goes, oh, it's like that? I said, yeah, it's like that. Like, bro, run your little game, and I'm going to run mine. And I just walked away from him, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and and so that, that was, he was, he was a little, he was a little, you know, he was a little sour for a while, man, but. Like I said, I ended up talking to him and, and, and it wasn't, you know, we, we never, we never got, you know, 
anything heated or nothing like that. But it's just funny though, because that's the kind of that's the kind of personality he had. Like that's what he was he's used to was used to getting his way. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, he was he, he was he was that kind of guy. Man. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, the other <laughs> the other guy that you had mentioned uh, was uh, correct me if I if I screw this up, but a man named Carlos Later who has a character based off of him in the movie Blow. Yes, yeah. In the movie Blow, his character is Diego. And uh, it's actually a phenomenal movie. It's with Johnny Depp. It is, but, is uh, a very good movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, I talked to him. He's, it's the, it's, he's, he's an, I don't know, I don't, want, I don't want to necessarily say he's an oxymoron, but he's a Colombian guy. And he's basically infatuated with being a Nazi. He's got like a swastika on his arm. He's in love with Hitler and all his concepts. Uh, he's got like a really, really, really weird personality. Um, I'm not going to, you know, like I'm not going to bash anybody for their sexual orientation. But, you know, like this guy was like, I mean, uh, I think swinger maybe is the term. But he was okay. just, he was, he was all over. The, like, he, I mean, he told me stories, though. I mean, I'm, you know, not nothing that he wouldn't admit to. You know, like he owned an island. He said, listen, we would just have week-long orgies on the island. Guys, <laughs> girls, you know, and this dude's a multimillionaire. And so I had conversations with him. He told me that the movie is a little bit, they over-embellish a little bit about the relationship he had with a guy named George Jung, who Johnny Depp plays. He basically says that, you know, like he knew George Jung, but, you know, he it wasn't like they were best friends and he cut him out. It was just a, a you know, a business opportunity and he took it, which is, you know, he cut, he cut George Jung out, but I mean, that's, that's usually what it is. I, 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 uh, here's a, here's a, here's a trippy one, man. This is a, uh, uh, unless you guys had something to ask about that, but, but I, you can go, no, back go for it. it. No, but go but for here's it. a, here's a trippy one, right? There's a guy named Alberto Martinez. Um, they called him Alpo. If you ever watched the movie, it's called paid in full. And, um, it's more of a hip hop movie, you know, so that kind of genre. But it's based on Alpo, on Alberto Martinez and a guy named Mitch. And um, and uh, there's a rapper named Cameron who plays Alpo. I'm talking about he, he, he plays him to the T. If you watch the movie, that, that personality that Cameron is, is portraying is Alpo to the T, right? Because I was with him. But, um, but, but so, yeah, the movie is basically about the, they're two guys. They start selling drugs together. Uh, they come up together. And that's another one of them instances where, you know, I call him Poe. Poe goes, man, listen, you know, the way they make a team in the movie, and it, it wasn't like that in real life. Like, he wasn't really best friends with a guy named Mitch. There was another guy in their trio. His name was A. And, and that's who really who he was friend with. And, you know, I mean, the motion picture is going to set it up to be, you know, obviously to, to, to you know, to sell. And But he was saying right. that's really not how it was. Uh, anyways, you guys probably haven't seen the movie, but he ends up killing Mitch. And, you know, they're, 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 they're supposed to be best friends. And what happens is Mitch, they're making so much money that Mitch's nephew gets kidnapped by a group of guys that are like really, really like violent hitters that are robbing a bunch of drug dealers. And they tell Mitch, listen, we want 14 kilos of cocaine or we're going to kill your nephew. And they send him his thumb or his pinky, one of his fingers, you know. And, you know, so Mitch goes to Alpo. And tells him, hey, man, I need you to help me. Like, these guys got my nephew. And 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 then he's like, all right, well, I'm going to get, you know, the 14 bricks. And then we'll go and get them. And then, you know, this is the way the movie portrays it. 
that they go and then Alpo ends up double crossing him and killing him in the van and taking the 14 bricks and then they kill the nephews too, the, the hmm. people. So, so I mean, obviously Alpo was like, yo, first he was like, listen, there was a lot more than 14 bricks in that bag, but, <laughs> but he's like, yo, I wasn't really friends with the guy. He was like, I was okay with him, but I wasn't really friends with the guy, you know? He was like, and on top of that, um, the guy Mitch was kind of like double crossing Alpo to, you know, to his connect. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit more, you know, intricacies that go along with it. But, I, but anyways, so to, to, to compound that story, Alpo ended up getting out after 30 years. And uh, he always had his perception. He always used to tell me, Berto, you know, they love me in Harlem, man. I took care of Harlem. You know, Harlem isn't going to kill me. Harlem loves me. He's like, the only dudes that really hate me are the guys in D.C. because that's who he cooperated on. He cooperated on like some heavier hitters in D.C. Just recently, he went back to Harlem and they, they found him dead. I guess he was wrong, huh? Yeah, I guess he was wrong. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yep. No, I didn't, so, I didn't know that movie, but now that, you know, that's added to the list. Cause yeah, paid in full. see this. Yep, paid in full. I met the guy, Alpo, Alberto Martinez. And I met some other guys, man. I met a lot of heavy hitters, man. Uh, a lot of heavy hitters that were in the cartel. I met a Colombian drug lord. Uh, nicest guy in the world, man. I'm telling you right now, nice guy. His name was Chupeta. You wouldn't, I mean, you would know by how he carried himself. He was a billionaire, literally a billionaire. Never had less than fifty thousand dollars on his account. You would, you would know, you would know by how, you know, like how he lived. But how he acted towards people, you would never know. The most humble guy. I mean, said hi to everybody every day, and super smart. Learned English maybe in like six months, man. I'm talking about mm, wow. super smart and. uh this guy literally had maybe 10 MS-13 members working for him. I mean, and when I mean working for him, I mean, this guy would get up in the morning, they would run to his room, take his sheets off his bed, take him down to wash the street. <laughs> nice. You know, they're grabbing his ice coolers to make sure there's ice in there all the time. I mean, you know, like cleaning his room spotless, shining his floor, you know. So, you know, you run into that a lot, man. Everybody's trying to hustle. Yeah, he was one of the guys. I ran into a lot of mobsters, man. A lot of, a lot of Italian mobsters. You know, one of the, I, I ran into a, a Philadelphia mob boss, uh, Ralph Natale. Mm. He was, he was, he was the head of the Philly mob right, right after Angelo Bruno died. I ran into, man, there's so many guys I just remember, man. Sure. I ran into and, and talked to and, and you wouldn't know it, man. You know, just normal guys. You just, you know, you run, you were going to the chow hall together, but you end up finding out like this dude was, you know, he was somebody out there. Yeah, I ran into them. I ran into, uh, here's a unique one. Young kid, man. He was actually a good friend of mine. So the Sinaloa cartel, the leader, you know, some people say is El Chapo. Some people say is El Mayo, which is his right-hand man. And, uh, well, I was actually locked up with El Mayo's son. One of them. Both of them, both right. of them were, both of them were in the unit, but I was, I was locked up with the youngest one, Seraphine. Good dude. Humble kid. Super young really shouldn't have been involved in nothing because family was worth probably over a couple billion dollars. Didn't have to get into the drug game, but you know, you kind of just grow up and then you do, but super cool. I met his, met, met his mom, you know, met his sister and his aunt. And it's really not, you know, it, it's like, it, it's hard because I know a lot of people, they listen. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know for sure, but I'm saying, I'm thinking a lot of people would listen and they hear names and it's automatically they turn these people into devils and they turn them into mm -hmm. the enemy of the world. And, and rightfully so, I understand, like, everybody, you know, like I said, I got blood on my hands and a lot of these guys do too. But at the end of the day, they're still human 
and and if you if you if you knew them, it, it would it might change the, the perception you have them at least just a little bit. Right. Yeah. I and that's a really good point because no matter what you did, I mean, it's something you did for like five minutes out of your entire lifetime. I mean, that's not it's not your whole story. No, for so, sure, for sure, man. Yeah. And and even like you know, I have this ongoing you know, struggle within myself because obviously I have to live with the decisions I made and they affect me now throughout life. Like I want to succeed, man. I want to go on. I want to be successful. Like I want to leave behind, you know, a legacy that people can look back and be like, man, that, that guy came a long way. Mm -hmm. But for the decisions that I made in my past, there's roadblocks everywhere, man. There's obstacles. And, you know, uh, you, you can't explain away the kind of charge I have, the kind of charges I have, you know, you can't, you can't you can't make that any better than it is. And, and in the same instance, you know, my family and the people I know, they still come from these neighborhoods. Like, you know, I don't I don't I don't have, you know, anybody that's not in some sort of poverty. So now, you know, you know, how do you justify the other side of it? Is, oh, can you justify, you know, cooperating like that? You got to remember that's frowned upon in, in every neighborhood I ever I ever was in. So it's like, you know, it's it, it, you get caught in the middle, and and at the end of the day, I just trust God, right? And I, and I move forward with that, and I gotta be content with every decision I made, and I stand on it. I stand on the decisions I made, and I just try to be better. You know, I try to be better every day, and I just strive to to try to find open doors and opportunities. And I mean, listen, man, like, uh, you know, I don't want to make this segment necessarily just about what I've accomplished, but mm -hmm. you know. Since I've been out, man, I've done nothing but put my best foot forward. You know, I went to school. I got my CDL. You know, me and my brother went into business together. We bought a semi-truck. Obviously, the industry isn't doing great right now. But, you know, so I came home and I haven't been driving. But I went back to school again on my own dime. And, and I'm going to school right now for uh, to be an electrical, you know, to, to, to be an electrician. You know, I work every day with a contractor. You know, so and but but in the same token, if if I find another opportunity that's going to present, you know, more wealth for my family, like I'm going to pivot. And mm. that's, that's that's I mean, that's that's what I that's what I think life is about, man, is just finding the opportunities and, and, and helping the people out that you love and care about along the way. I mean, that's all I can try to do. Oh, absolutely. I think I think that's the part of your story. That's probably the inspirational part is you came through it all. I mean, it's. I guess your options are kind of limited after, you know, you turn on people, but, but most people I think end up falling back into the same habits and you completely avoided it. So a hundred percent. And and it's funny that you mentioned that, man, there's a lot of people that cooperate on our indictment that are back in Milwaukee. Nothing's happened to them. You know, I mean, you know, thank God, like I wouldn't want nobody to be hurt or nothing like that, but hmm. you know, it's, 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 the reality is that, you know, where else could they go? A lot of these people, they're born and raised in the South side of Milwaukee. They don't have family that they could just escape to. And right. yeah, mm -hmm. so, you know, so they're, they're literally back in Milwaukee, you know, around the same guys, you know, they might talk crazy to them. Maybe they'll try to jump them in it, but I mean, at least it's not like they're trying to kill them. Uh, sure. Now, now I'm sure they couldn't, you know, they couldn't probably walk a neighborhood in Chicago and, and have the same result, but you know, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's where it's at. That's what, that's what, the the gang has kind of evolved into you know it's a it's a lot different these days than it was in my generation or the generation before me better for the neighborhood right better for the community because there's not as mm. much violence and and the opposite can be said as far as 
how the gangs are perceived, right? It's kind of a joke. Like people look at the Latin Kings now and yeah, they're still dangerous in a lot of areas, but not in Milwaukee. At least I, I think me personally, man, I think that the government should get a lot of credit. People are going to hate me for saying that, but they single-handedly, yeah. they single-handedly destroyed the Latin Kings. I mean, because they cut the head off the snake and then they cut the snake in half and then they cut it in half again and they buried it. I mean, that's just the reality of it, man. Yeah. I mean, people can, they can, they can say what they want, but they're, they're matter of fact. I mean, you know, if you look at from when we got indicted to now, 17 years later, just the amount of violence, we probably covered the amount of violence that the Latin Kings did from that time to now in nine months, literally like nine months. I mean, you want to talk about serious, serious heavy hitters, like between the guys that I knew and, and, and myself, I mean, we literally came forward with more shootings than a lot of guys could comprehend. And like I said, that's not to glorify it, but it's just to kind of shed some light on both sides, you know, for people that look at it and, you know, they kind of want to be like, what really did they do? Well, what really did we do? And then what really did the government do? You know, it's mm-hmm. both ways. I don't know. Eric, you got anything? Because I can ask questions. I yeah, if you got curious question, about you talked about you think that that the the government did a big part of shutting down the Latin Kings in Milwaukee. I don't know any. I know very little about the Latin Kings, but is it possible that it's just a pivot of the Latin Kings per se that they've just made the decision to not be as violent? Or but it sounded like you seem to think that they're still pretty awful in Chicago. Yeah, listen, the Chicago area is always going to be. The uh, there's no toning that down. It's too densely populated. Now Milwaukee is more scattershot, right? So the kind of people you recruit and then how long they can stay jail and prison free is going to kind of dictate the effect they can have. But now, nah, as far as there being a pivot, there's no pivot if you're 100%. And this is this is this is going by the evolution of the Latin Kings, not what we talked about, you know, in episode one or what the what the origin of it was. I'm talking about the evolution of Latin Kings. If you go on by the evolution of Latin Kings and what it should what it should be doing, right? You're talking about any and everybody that disrespects them, it should be war. That hasn't changed. You know, if anything, it's gotten even worse because the other gangs have been emboldened by the fact that the Latin Kings don't aren't dominant anymore. There's no fear for Latin Kings like there used to be. And listen, I'm not here to, I, I'm not I'm not trying to disrespect any of them. Like I said, I got no ill feelings towards any of them, man. And, and, and I'm not saying that any of them dudes are scared. I'm not saying that because everybody has their own walk and the way they carry themselves. I'm just saying the perception of what it is and the perception of what it was are two entirely different things now, you know? So do I believe there's a pivot? No, I just believe that it's not the same breed of people that are out there. You know, it's not the same kind of uh, environment that it was before. And, you know, like I said, I believe the government had a lot to do with that. And I believe that they uh, they came in with a sword and 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 they pinpointed the heart, so to speak. Yeah, I could see that. And yeah, um, there, there is. I mean, there's such a, a big difference between Milwaukee and Chicago with any type of like gang activity, because Milwaukee and I think, Berto, I think you said this maybe even in the first episode, but. Milwaukee really is a small town. I mean, even though it's yeah. a, even though it's a big city by Wisconsin standards, it's a small town. Chicago, though, I mean, it's you can't walk two feet without bumping into somebody. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, and Milwaukee, like I said, man, it's the it's the it's the biggest small town you're ever gonna run into because you're gonna know, so especially the South Side, you're gonna talk to somebody who knows somebody that you know. It it just it's it's inevitable. I mean, especially with like, I mean, even like you know, Facebook or whatever it is, like there's so many people that that are intertwined and you know just connect and it, it just go on and on and on and that's why i say you know that's why i i you know not not to just to kind of pivot back a little bit to what i was saying about like favoritism within the latin kings and 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 how it is that's a very real thing man because somewhere down the line you're related to this person or you're related to that person and that person had rank or this person you know and that's what carries a lot of people to the top you know, or drops them down to the bottom. Because if you don't have those connections and you don't really know but know nobody, like, you know, you're you're, you're basically clawing yeah. unless you unless you're really, really known for what you do. Yeah, no, it's 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 uh it's intriguing to think about how Milwaukee tries to mirror Chicago. But I mean, you know, I used to be the first one to say, Man, F Chicago, man, we do the same sh- same stuff over here. <laughs> yeah. You know, but trust me, it's not. It's nothing. It's nothing like that. You yeah. know, I mean, and I was with, you know, and that's it, that's it. You know, I was with one of the regional Incas, the first regional Inca that ever cooperated for the Latin King. I was with him. They had like nine murders on their case. So, I mean, and he was from, he was his originally, his original chapter was from Chicago. So, you know, I was with him. Cool guy too, you know. And, and we knew some of the same people when I talked to them and it just, we were in different eras kind of. So yeah, I mean, it, Milwaukee, Chicago is nine day, man. Yeah. So, land. Two more questions oh, for you. All right. Kind of play right. together. Bonus so question. when you, so how long once you were in prison or maybe you made this decision already before you even ended up in prison, but while you were in going through your indictment, but at what point did you decide that, okay, I need to walk away from this life and be done with it when I get out of here. All right. So that's, I mean, that's a good question. Um, before I went to prison, man, I, uh, 05 was a really, really bad year for me. My dad died and my dad was like my foundation. He meant the world to me. And then obviously we got indicted later that year. And, you know, during my time in prison, obviously I lose my kid's mom as far as relationships. And you hit rock bottom. Um, you start seeing that some of the people that you called your closest friends are cooperating on you. Your family's got nothing. You can't see your kid. You got nothing. You start to have a real, real conversation with yourself about what your life is and where you want it to go. I don't know, man. I think that, you know, the nights in the hole and, you know, by myself, I just started to think and, and started to piece together all the falsities, you know, I don't even know if that's a word, but that's what it seems. All the, all the false thoughts that I had in my head about, you know, this, this, this nation and these friendships and, and my relationships, it was just, that's what it was. It was, it was a facade and it angered me, man. And I started to really, really think about what I needed to do to change. Like I said, going up to the indictment, I never believed in God, man. I didn't think that a just or loving God would take my dad or you know, my brother had got locked up right before we got indicted. They brought him from a different jail. You know, I didn't think that a just, a loving God would do those kind of things 
to me at 17, about to be 18. You know, I was really, really hateful in that aspect. I, I didn't believe that there was a God. And, and I think that that's ultimately where my thought process changed, man, as I started to read the Bible a little bit and started to get in tune with some sort of spirituality. And, and once I got interested in, in trying to find out which religion fit me and, and, and which denomination fit me, and, and, and I started to focus on kind of that part of my life, the other things started to not make sense to me no more. I think that's where the gradual change happened. It didn't happen fast. You know, obviously, you don't turn your feelings on and off like a light switch, man. It, 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 it's a progression. And I think from that moment, man, you, you, you start to realize you're in there, you're doing time by yourself. And I guess that's, you know, probably like around, I'd say, 2007, 2008 is when I started to really just hone in on, on myself and and realize how much of my life I actually gave up. You know, I, I didn't even, I didn't take care of my kids. You know, I, I wasn't there for my kids. You know, my whole existence was being a Latin king. And I think all those thoughts accumulated to, to me realizing that that life needed to not exist for me anymore. And then now fast forward, you get out of prison. Was there ever a point once you got out that you felt like, oh God, I might slip back into this life or I don't never. know if I can do never. this. Never, 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 never. Now one thought, man, I, uh, I'm so far removed. I can't even, I can remember the, the events well. Right. And I can try to put myself back there, <clears throat> but to really, really try to think like how I was thinking is, is I'm so far removed from that, man. And, and even the conversation we're having, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that probably, if they ever hear that I did this and they listen, they're going to be like, that doesn't sound like fertile, like, what the heck? you know, yeah. uh, um, so I, I'm, I was so far removed physically for so long and then mentally and, and spiritually, I built myself up. There was never a chance I would ever go back to any of that, man. There was never a chance that I would ever invite that into my life. And, and I didn't, and, and, and I didn't want it to, I didn't want it to affect me one way or the other. I didn't want to hold ill feelings towards anybody and i was hoping that that carried over and they didn't hold any towards me okay cool. yeah this definitely did end on a high inspirational note oh, there. Yeah. yeah okay we i would yeah i didn't think this episode was going to be as serious but it ended up actually being very serious um berta thank you thank you yet again um this is so unusual for for me and eric to sit here and like not be able to laugh things off, <laughs> you know, because uh, you've, you've listened, you know, like we would joke about very inappropriate things and we can't do it here. So it's right, right, right. It's, it's so, it's so odd to actually have to be serious. And, but thank you. Thank you for that. But well, I mean, I, listen, that's good. Maybe it's a, maybe it gives you a little bit more diversity, man. Maybe. The, yeah, the, absolutely. It does. And I don't, I don't even know if you realize how amazing of a story you have. They should be making a movie about you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's right. Yeah, I'm open. I'm open. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> beyond, you wait. You wait for us. the call, right? That's beyond <laughs> us. But yeah, if somebody else there has connections, uh, so yeah, that that completes uh, part four of four. Um, in two weeks, we'll be back with our regular programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, back on the back on the mafia story, Berta. Thank you, thank you, thank you for. Uh, taking the time out and and sharing the story with us, and I know, I know you just did the tip of the iceberg here, but you know we appreciate it. No, thank you, fellas. I appreciate you guys having me, and 
Hopefully this won't be the last time people will hear from me. I hope not. not. Then we will wrap up this episode. Um, as usual, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Gavin, do your thing. Sure. Uh, you can reach me at milwaukeemafia.com. You can reach me at milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. You can find me other random places online. I don't give out my personal address and phone number, so don't uh, don't ask. But uh, but I'm easy to track down, and if you want to reach Eric or Berto, you can reach them through me. And I encourage everybody, ask lots of questions for Berto, because I bet you, if you give us enough questions, Berto might just be nice enough to come back and do an episode to answer all of your questions for you. It's not a bad idea. All right, well, we'll see everybody in... One week if you're a Patreon member and two weeks with a regular podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.